to episode three of Stockton to Malone. My name is Micah Utrecht. I'm R.L. Stevens. Been a little while since our last episode. Not because we didn't record another episode. We did record another episode. We had to get out hot take. The take was a little too hot. <laughs> we we had to let our take on uh, on get out cool off a little bit. We had to put it on the rack. Yes. Yeah. We have, burn your tongue. <laughs> <laughs> the next episode, we're gonna we're gonna hit you with it. The one right after this. It's gonna be a little a little late. You know, you've already gotten your get out hot takes, but nobody has brought the analysis <laughs> of this movie that we do. The analysis was so crazy that I was hating in the beginning, and then like Paul on the road to Damascus, the scales fell Saul off. Saul on the road. Oh, to you're Damascus. right. You're right. You're right. Well, both pastor sons. We should <laughs> yeah. know. Saul, this is the Saul to Paul transition. That's, right. That's true. Paul is just woke Saul. <laughs> yeah. That's true. Uh, so you'll be getting that one in the next episode that will be out sooner than... Uh, there will be less of a lag time between the episodes. Um, uh, you've also been doing a lot of stuff lately with the Democratic Socialists of America in Chicago. We, we had to squeeze in this recording real quick because in less than an hour we're doing the leadership development training with DSA here in Chicago. But I'm really excited about that. Um, we're going to be practicing organizing skills so that we can organize for socialism. I think a lot of our listeners probably know that things are kind of popping off right now with DSA. We've got over 20,000 members uh, and all kinds of stuff going on in cities or towns and villages all <laughs> yeah. across the country. There's somebody in Mississippi that's like the only member of the chapter. But like, yo, shout out to, I believe, Melissa holding it down. In Mississippi, also, I think solo somebody dolo. in uh, Grand Forks, North Dakota, maybe. Dang, so. you know. So shout out to y'all, you know, holding it down for the squad. Um, but yeah, we want to really start doing these trainings and really building these skills um, so that we can spread them out throughout the network uh, eventually. Also, more importantly, you and I declared ourselves chairman of the national convention after party. That's committee. true. <laughs> That's true. I, the national convention is in Chicago this year in August. That's right. That's right. Uh, I said that we need to start a rumor that Bernie Sanders is going to be there. <laughs> Bernie will be there. Bernie's in the building. <laughs> yeah. Listen, I'm not going to say that it's happening. I'm not going to say it's not happening. I'm just anonymous. People sources, are talking. People are know, saying. I've heard of that. It's say. possible yeah. that Bernie Sanders can be there. Yeah, so I interviewed Chantel Johnson. We went to school together, which you'll hear about in the interview. Uh, she's from Chicago, and it's an interview about violence in Chicago, specifically about the death of her brother, who was murdered in uh, a, a couple years ago. It's a really important story for me because, you know, I, I've known her for 10 years now, over 10 years. The interview we, is, itself goes through that re the relationship, not only with her and her brother, but also between the two of us and how we've changed politically and how, we, how our relationship has grown. And that this, the death of her brother and the, the trouble that he was in was kind of like a, in the background of this 10 year relationship, something that we would, that I became aware of, increasingly aware of over time as we um, got closer. Um, you know, Chicago is obviously known as a city with a particularly high violence rate uh, and Nobody's story is perfectly representative, but I think his his is fairly representative of a lot of the kind of shootings and violence that we hear about in Chicago all the time. But the way she tells it, and this is where I think there's real power in her story, the way she tells it is to put him in context, not only 
as a person who had family herself and her mom and the other brothers also had a community and and was interacting in that world but also was a product of a political system a socio-political world that constrained choice that um created the conditions for this type of violence to exist and she goes to great lengths to describe this and there's a lot of power in that analysis because she's saying that like it's not a matter simply of personal responsibility but rather like people exist in relationship for example she talks about the closing of schools in in the neighborhood she talks about how there wasn't access to the hospital like uh, because there was no level one trauma center at the University of Chicago at that time and how that affected um, his death. She really like peels back that layer and lets you into the world that uh, she, she grew up in and that her brother died in. Her story is a real corrective to the whole narrative about oh, preventing urban violence is going to be solved by having you know love at home and, and it's a real personal responsibility, culture of poverty, blah, blah, blah. She talks very movingly about how there was no lack of love for uh, her brother and growing up and in her family and, and elsewhere and, and you you talk in in, uh, in the interview about how you had heard about this kid like throughout your time in college like you you could sense it was like very palpable that there was a real love there but but the structural factors were sort of too much for him to escape and and Chantel's real frustration and anger still today that comes out in the interview is that that love was not enough to overcome all of those structural constraints from from the poverty in her neighborhood and the lack of economic choices to like you said the lack of the of a trauma center in a neighborhood that is near the epicenters of violence in Chicago and thus you know epicenter of violence in in the whole country um, we should note that since his death uh, thanks to some organizing campaigns by uh, some organizations of mostly black youth on the south side of Chicago. The University of Chicago has announced that they are going to build a level one trauma center. Uh, the other corrective, I think, is to the narrative around prison and violence and how we should approach it politically. Uh, because there's there tends to be, anytime someone black is killed... Obviously, there's a right wing smear on the person. We've seen that happen a lot. So then the you don't left, have to be a black person. Yeah, you know, the poor on the south. You could be the guy on the United <laughs> flight. Right. All of a sudden, come on. <laughs> he was no angel. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So when the no angel thing comes up, though, people tend to over, you know, overcorrect, overcompensate for people it. on the left. You mean? Yeah, people on the left tend to overcompensate. She's forces you as a as a listener um, to have to wrestle with the real choices that her brother made and the real life he lived. And so rather than flattening these stories and erasing people's pasts, we need to actually see them as humans. We need to embrace life and all of its complications and understand that we are implicated by the, by the systemic failures that um, produce this tragedy. And that's really the message here, um, forcing us to have to get out of our comfort zone and really face, face up to the realities of people's lives all right so with that we will turn it over to rl and chantel
All right, so I'm interviewing my good friend Chantel Johnson, and we're really going to talk about the story not only of violence in Chicago, but we want to tell the story of the people that live in these neighborhoods and in this city. Really, when we talk about Chicago violence, it's a story of people. And uh, so I'm really, really grateful that you're here to talk with us, Chantel. Yes, I'm, I'm honored to be here with you all. Shan as I like to call you. Uh, we've known each other since like fall 2006. We met in college, right? Yes. You've said it recently that we grew up together like over the last like 10 years or so. Like we, uh, when we first met, we were met in Professor Williams' history class, Black Slaves, White Masters. Yes, Black Slaves and White Masters. <laughs> it was a course on the, history, uh, on the history of slavery in the United States. It was a freshman seminar class. And Professor Williams was one of the few black uh, professors on campus. We went to uh, Carleton College together. Yeah, so... We met in college and uh, we're from like very different, we had very different backgrounds, uh, I think, right? Yes, we do. That was like actually like a big part of, a big topic of conversation when we were, especially our first year, Mm -hmm. um, was like, just like where you were from, which was Chicago, which which part of Chicago? South side. I'm from the southeast side of Chicago, really close to Indiana. Which I knew nothing about. Right. I like to say I started there with a 2.5 GPA and um, I left there with a 3.25 and I graduated cum laude, which is really big seeing that's a big jump in your GPA for that kind of institution. One of the things I remember that first year was hearing you talk about your, your youngest brother um, and you would, you would call him and bring him on speakerphone and I remember hearing his voice. He had this really high-pitched voice. Mm-hmm. You'd always be like, so proud. You're like, this is my little brother, Richie. And you would always talk about how he was so cute and he, ha- he sounded like a chipmunk and all-, all this stuff, right? So could you talk a bit about like who he was at that time when we first started school? He was like 11 or 12. I yeah, think. so he was young. I do remember him being, um, he was definitely the last one kind of still at home with my mom. And um, he was always comparing his grades to mine. And as I said earlier, at first I was struggling at Carlton. So he had plenty more A's than I did <laughs> on my report card. I have three brothers. I love them all dearly. And Richie, the youngest one, was at home, and he was everybody's chocolate baby. He was just the sweetest, the sweetest kid. Really smart, um, funny. I'm always getting to, getting into something and uh, just into sports. And so he was definitely one of the one of the people I talked about a lot in college. So sophomore year happened, and I noticed you kind of talked about him a little less sophomore year. It wasn't until junior year we had gone abroad. You went to Ghana, I, rem- I, re- I believe, right? Yes, fall, yep. Mm-hmm. Yep, and I went to Bolivia, and then we came back. Um, so this is like uh, springtime 2009. That was the next time I really remember you talking about your little brother, and you were, you were like, he's in trouble. And I, I remember you telling me that he had been doing strong arm robberies in like the mall parking lot. Can you can you talk a little bit about the transition from, you know, him, you know, the grades and him being a baby to to strong arm robbery? Like what what happened? Yeah, um all my brothers actually, you know, around middle school, especially early high school, kind of just got involved in like just um criminal activity, you know, and um Richie was no different and um I don't know. He just started misbehaving, I guess. And it was it took a big toll on me because I, I just wasn't expecting it from him. He saw what my other brother's been through and to see him go down the same path was like, oh, my gosh, are you are you watching any of this? 
And I rem- I just remember him just g- being in and out of trouble. And I remember one rumor distinctly um, of Richie robbing a neighbor that we actually knew. And that neighbor contacted someone that I knew. And that person contacted me and said, hey, we think Richie is like robbing people. And did you know about this? And I was like, what? Word? I This is crazy. And so it was, that was a, you know, big jump in two years from the the brother that I knew was so innocent and sweet to now rumored to be doing um, strong arm robbery in households in the community. Uh, how did you feel about that? It was upsetting. Um, was I surprised and shocked? I'm not, I'm not, I can't say that, that I was for the simple fact my two brothers older than him were engaged in probably similar activities around the same age and so it was just more disheartening than anything seeing him go down a similar path and not just his older brothers but what other um children particularly black boys in the community were doing it's like okay here we go again you know and now what can we do to stop this right and i remember that being the tone of the conversation like how can we get him out of the out of the house you know move him somewhere I remember. I just remember hearing the desperation in your voice. Yeah, I was kind of planning for him to come to Minnesota. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So, what was what was that like? What were those conversations like? Were you having those conversations with your mom? Were you talking to him? Like, I was talking to a group of people. I was trying to figure out how could we save Richie. You know, I felt like he was the one that we could save. I didn't think it was too late for my other two brothers, but I felt they were they were too far gone. And we could we could say Richie, but I think I was gravely mis- um, mistaken about that. Why? Because he was more involved in it than my older two brothers, and that was the, probably the most shocking part of it. Now, when you say more involved, what do you mean? He was deeper into um, gang life and drug life than my brothers were. I Compared to Richie, my other brothers were just playing. I remember you telling me that you would talk to your brother about like what this life actually was and why he believed in... In what he was doing like it was can you give can you give the audience um a, a window into how he felt about being part of that life i remember one time distinctly i was at home on some kind of break i remember driving richie to his hangout spot on 79th and marquette where he shouldn't have been because that's where a lot of trouble he got into and i remember asking him like why are you doing this? You know, why are you selling drugs and why are you running with this gang? And he pretty much told me that this was his family. He had a bond, a connection with them that he didn't have at home. They helped um, provide his needs and wants and desires, something that he also couldn't get from home. And, um, you know, he told me about all the things he wanted, you know, and how we had so little growing up and how he wanted he wanted more. And so many of his criminal activity involved theft and selling um, drugs and, uh, you know, and eventually gun possession. And um, I think ultimately, Robert, what he was seeking for is what we all kind of seek for. And that's just (laughs) economic security to be valued and and have protection. Unfortunately, a lot of um, poor communities in Chicago and throughout the country are don't have those things. You know, they don't have great. Um, job opportunities and they they don't feel valued and when you don't have those things how can you have a sense of um, protection in your community and I think that that his his gang provided those things that 
you know, our nuclear family and larger, the community just wasn't providing. And I think you told me that your mom was a a home care, a personal care assistant. Yeah, she's a um, a home care aide. That's right. Because I I was always talking about race, like going back to when we first met, you know, over 10 years ago. But that whole time that I was talking, I really didn't have a solid idea of like, what do, who am I really talking about when I say black people, you know? Right. So one of the stats that I came across was that your mom's job is like one of the most common job, top three jobs that black people have in the country. Um, And I think it's like 23% of all, um, of all of these aides are black. And Hmm. most of them are black women, you know? Yeah. So she's not the only person in this position, you know? And so when you're talking about like the economy of all of this, like the, I think the, the median salary for that position is somewhere around nineteen thousand, twenty, twenty thousand dollars a year. Mm-hmm. Yep. And so uh, when I read that, you know, this is of course after I knew the details of the story. It was just like, yeah, and like so the the effort to unionize these jobs in particular, it could have been a, a serious factor in changing the not just the outcome on the job, but the outcome of your brother's life. You know. Right. So I, that always kind of stuck stuck with me. But going back to the to the story, at the same time that your brother was uh, doing this violent, like like stealing and doing violence in the community, he also was still your baby brother. Oh yeah, um, I remember coming home from school and both um, undergrad and graduate school, and he would cook me breakfast. <laughs> <laughs> One time he washed my clothes and. Um, you know, wanted to take me out to eat and things like that. And, you know, even asking for love advice. So, you know, as he was involved in these pretty deep negative criminal activities and growing up really, really fast from a, just a young boy to a, a fast growing man, he was still a, a young boy just trying to like find his way, you know, like Chantel, like, how do you know when you're in love? I was like, oh, my gosh, my little brother's in love. And uh, just a big shout out to Diamond, who was very supportive to Richie during um, the time of his his incident through his death. Um, but I remember giving him advice about love and talking about things like that. And so he's definitely still my my young brother and still going through just the, I guess, traditional, if that's the word we can use, things that people go through at that age. You know, thinking about a, a career or thinking about love or food and restaurants and hanging out and partying and sports and things like that. And what struck me when you would tell me these stories was also little, little sprinkle, you sprinkle little details in because some of these stories would happen in his car. Oh yeah. You know, like you'd be riding around with him. And so you'd be having like these tender brother, sister moments where like, it's clear that he's a young, he's a boy. But then you also have to, you were, you were telling me, like, what were, what were the thoughts that would go through your mind about the, just the danger of even being in his car with him, you know? Can you speak on that a little bit? To be honest, I, I wasn't as fearful of being in his car. I knew the risk, and my mom definitely warned me. And I remember when he got his car, and I was riding with him somewhere. My mom said, are you getting the car with Richie? And I was like, yeah. Girl, don't be getting in the car with him. Her, her concern is everyone knew in the family and in the neighborhood that people had their eyes on Richie. And my mom didn't want me to get in the middle of it if something happened. You know, that's the risk that I assumed. You know, I guess at the time I was thinking, 
well if you're gonna go down i guess i'm gonna go down too those moments were were real for us and i think those moments of being in 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 mo in, um, in situations or in, in places where i could get hurt kind of foster our relationship that he was able to open up to me and tell me some some things that some demons that he was grappling with so let's rewind for a second now you talked a bit about like that the gang meant family to him. Mm-hmm. He also talked a bit about like the history of it too with you, right? Like the principles and values of the gang. Yes. For him, it was, it was all about gangs were about loyalty and family and working together in community, which he's, that's true history. When you, when you, when you learn about the story of the Bloods and the Crips, you know, those are founded by people who are in like the Black Panther Party, you know? or other kind of organizer groups who really want to go into communities and help people organize. And for some reason, for one reason or another, I'm sure we could all think of them, they kind of turned a different way. Why do you think he, he couldn't let it go? So let's, let's, let's move to when he went to jail. Did that change how he felt about his life? He was 12 when, uh, in 2006. By the time, by 2009, you know, he's middle school age and he's doing the robberies. And then what? So, um, he's heavily in drug activity, um, selling drugs, that is, and um, really deep into the gang life around the time he's in high school, sophomore year, junior year. Around that time, he, he had got shot a couple of times. Um, once in the leg and then once in the stomach. Also around that time, one of the, you know, the biggest things he went to jail for was gun possession. And since he was 17, on the cusp of being, a, I guess, a legal adult, he was sent to prison. And that was big for, um, for my brother. Huge. He wrote me a letter really talking about he was, he's been thinking about things. And, you know, he really wants to, to change and he really wants to do better. Um, and when he got out of jail, he did try. He did try to do better. He tried to remove himself from those activities, but he kept creeping back in. Um, and I think it had had a lot to do with him being a, um, a bit too deep in, into the life. Um, it kind of reminds me of addiction a little bit, how you are you're dealing with something, but whatever chemicals are in your brain is still drawing you to it. Um, and, and two... Uh, you know, he still had loyalty to this group too. You know, they did things for him, and he was expected to do things for for them. And so, really trying to please his family and please his friend friends, it's really it was really hard for him to to break away. So we graduated in 2010, and the conversations that you and I had about like, okay, how are we going to save this boy's life? You know, that was how you were thinking. That happened in 2009. It kind of happened a little bit in through mm-hmm. 2010. And you moved to Seattle to go to grad school to get your master's in social work, right? Yes. You're in school, and he came out there, right? Yeah, he came out to Spokane, which is about three or four hours away from Seattle. And um, he, and, um, I don't know if I told you this, Robert, but he tricked me. You know, he talked to me about starting this new life and doing better. And I helped him get out here. But what he did was he robbed someone. <laughs> in, in Spokane? Yes. He robbed someone, him and a friend, and then um, they went back to Chicago and the crazy part about that is he asked me to help him get a plane ticket his story was so convincing 
that I, I got the plane ticket, but right before he wanted to leave, I was gathering evidence from my other brothers who said, mm, this is what he got there trying to do, and I canceled the flight. He still found his way out to Spokane, him and a friend. <laughs> 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 you know, and they did what they was going to do, and then they came back to Chicago. And, um, you know, so I thought I was helping him, and then I, you know, as my mom always said, says, if there's a will, there's a way. So, you know, he was like, all right, she might not, <laughs> she might have canceled the plane ticket, but I'm still going to find my way out there. And he did. And, um, and that's what I heard what happened. He never really talked to me about that. I never got a confession of out of him out of that one. <laughs> was that when you gave up hope to a degree? Like when were you, did you still have hope at that moment? I never, I never gave up hope for, um, for Richie. I remember in 2014, um, you know, it was a year I was going to graduate from school. He, he had, at this point, he was, he's supposed to have been a senior in high school, but had, uh, dropped out. And his girlfriend at the time was graduating and they had plans on going to some school in Illinois and they was going to move out there that summer in 2014. So there, there were plans for him to, I guess, finally leave Chicago um, and, you know, be with his girlfriend and, um, things like that, you know, and the year prior, she was actually pregnant with twins, but they were so young, they were like 16, and so she had a, had an abortion, and I, and I remember Richard being really sad about that, you know, he really wanted, and she was, she was, you know, it was rumored that she was going to have twins, and that's why she had an abortion, because she wasn't ready for, you know, she wasn't ready for one child and to 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 be possibly pregnant with two. She definitely wasn't ready, and she had an abortion. And I really took a big toll on Richard. And um, I remember him telling me that you know he definitely would have got his act together if she would have decided to to keep him. So at the time, uh, there was a, tri- a, a a point at which the realities of his life kind of set in. When did the fear become all consuming? For him, it became real when his best friend was killed. What year was that? This had to be in, yeah, around maybe 2013. And his best friend was killed. And my mom told me that Richard came home so distraught, really crying, crying really bad, upset that his friend had passed away or was killed. It kind of hit him that the things he were doing that, you know, he can be, he can be killed too. Not too long after that, I, it was rumored that my brother had killed someone. And when I heard the, the rumor, that's when it became real to me that, shit, my brother's going to die out here. Rumor or not, just the idea of him being associated with the murder became very real for myself and my, and, um, and my family. And it wasn't too long after that that, you know, um, in 20, early 2014 that um, Richie confessed that he did some, some harmful things to people. It really made families sad about the loss of their family member. And it was a deep time. It, that was a really crucial moment in our relationship because my brother just confessed some really horrendous things. He felt that he needed to share that with me and I needed to know the truth about things and I think he needed to get, needed to get that off his chest and um and I remember telling him that I loved him and that 
I personally did not pass any judgment, and based off our previous conversations of why he did, the, why he re, why he was doing the things that he was doing, that I understand. Not saying that I supported them, but I can understand why someone would choose to go down that path, and that I was here for him, and that was probably the last deep conversation, you know, we had before he was shot that May. What did you mean by you could understand? I understand that when you put a group of poor people in a certain environment, they will behave in a certain way. I understand that people are hungry, people need clothing, and people need to find a way to make money, and people would do that at any means necessary. In the traditional way of of what we expect people to do, like go to school, get good grades, go to college and get this and earn this, earn this a certain amount of money. It's just flawed. You know, I have two degrees and I'm not making what the statistics say I should be making right now at my current job. My brother wasn't foolish. He was seeing what I was doing. And before he passed away, my brother had already owned a car. This was at you know, 16, 17, already owned a car, was making good money. And I was in my mid-20s, just trying to get where he's at. <laughs> so he understood at a very young age the flawed system and the unreasonable things, expectations that, you know, we hold in a society for people to be great or to be successful. And so I could understand why people want to sell drugs. It's fast money. It's quick money. It's everything that we express all the values that we express in this country. We want things to be convenient, easy, and quick. After after the reality of, like, he was probably going to get shot again, I just remember you calling me up and just, it would be at night, real late, and you, you'd be seized with just, like, anxiety and just a sense of powerlessness and just just deep sadness, you know? And this is like a, this, I just remember, this was not just one conversation that we had, you know? Yeah. So I think, so Richard was shot three times, as I said, once in the leg and one in the stomach. The one in the stomach scared everybody. It scared the shit out of him, too. Um, I remember him talking to me about it. This happened in his car. You know, they shot, I guess, the driver's side of the, um, the driver's side, and it, it hit him in the stomach. And he just remembered not being able to, to breathe. That shook us all. Um, and him, too, like, oh, my gosh. I can actually, actually die. And I honestly believe that, <laughs> I really believe that Richard was really trying to do, do something different. You know, he was really trying to change. And um, it just so happened that he was, I guess, um, he got pulled over by the cops one day or something. And... They took him in. He stayed like overnight in jail. And he had to um, come back. He At the time, he had moved in with my uncle, who lives around South Shore Drive. So in a, in a better neighborhood, not, not terribly far from where his hangout spot is, but a noticeably different neighborhood where those kind of activities don't readily happen. He was on his way back to my uncle's house. That's when it all went down. From what... I've heard 
and I had I had a couple of people watch. It's actually footage out there of it. South Shore Drive is a very busy street. It leads into um, Route 21. It's a Chinese restaurant over there that caught the footage, and apparently he was walking northbound, and a car came and kind of blocked him in. Two people ran towards him, and he ran out trying to run out towards the street and they both just began to shoot him those are the bullets that pretty much took him out he lived for a little bit over a year his injuries involved uh, whew. his injuries involved the major one was uh, a spinal in injury that left him paralyzed from the neck down on the scene, apparently he he passed away, and he was brought back. He was he was, he was, he was resuscitated. So I guess it was like 68th and South Shore Drive. He was taken about 10 miles away to Northwestern Hospital. That passes, by the way, University of Chicago, which is a pretty awesome hospital. But they do not have a level one trauma unit. So he goes downtown to downtown Chicago, and if you have to drive between South Shore Drive and downtown, and you know about Chicago traffic, you can just imagine how long that um, ride might be, even if you got people moving out the way for you while you're in an ambulance. Um, if you have a brain injury and every second matters, you can just imagine the, the loss of oxygen coming from his brain. And he goes to the hospital, and we, knew, we didn't know he was there for about three or four days, and we were finally able to locate him at the, at the hospital. I remember I remember when you were first telling me that story, which um, is obviously like the emotional element of it is intense, you know. But I remember you pivoted from not just the emotions, but uh, you were you were analyzing the systems of it all, you know, the systemic element of it all. You know, because, you know, I think part of what made it made us made us able to talk about it was because I was going through like a very similar, you know, I was going through a death experience of my own, like with my dad dying around that, you know, he died in 2012. And so I had like, I understood death, but it wasn't the kind of death where I felt like the world had conspired to kill him. How did you deal with what, what is nothing short of in my mind, a, a conspiracy to, to kill your brother? There's the U Chicago element. There's just the what where, where we mentioned your mom's job and like the neighbor, the dynamics of like how power functions in in the city and how the economy works. All of these different systems. I remember you talking to me about that. How did it feel to have to wrestle with obviously the emotional element of the death, but also to know that that death was manufactured? I was pissed, and I wasn't even upset that he was killed by these two young men. I was pissed because this was predictable. I said in the beginning of our conversation, there's only one or two ways out. And the only reason why those are the only two options, particularly in poor environments, is because everything is already conspiring against you. I think the year before, or a couple of years before um, the incident, they had shut down a number of schools on the south side and west side of Chicago. Where, where are you expecting these, these kids to go? You know, like, if we think education is the, is the key to everything, 
you didn't shut down a number of critical systems to really help advance brains, minds, and development and whatnot. You know, like those kind of things matter. That 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 incident just spoke volumes to institutionalized oppression that's way bigger than like individual acts you know that there's things in place that that create this path that not just my brother is on that that other people are on and continue to be on and even even in his his life after the shooting just nursing homes you know the the poor pay that they pay the nurses, you know, uh, my brother developed huge bed sores because people wasn't turning him. And we learned that people were just, they just didn't care. And they didn't care because they didn't have good paying jobs, you know. And my brother was not important to them. Not important. Once again, I wasn't mad at those nurses. As you said earlier, Robert, the, the, the medium income of people who work in home care aid jobs is $19,000. I'm sure CNAs probably just make a little bit more than that. Just the, the whole experience of just dealing with the hospital system, level one trauma unit. So, you know, and what did that mean for a university who's literally three miles away to not have a level one trauma unit? That means, Robert, if you got hit by a car by my uncle's house and you was in a critical situation, you ain't going to the University of Chicago either. So it, it really impacts people on such a great scale. And it's a terrible feeling to really think about death on that level. I mean, and then you juxtapose that with the fact that you all knew who killed him. And uh, what was that like? Yeah, everyone was upset. Like, everyone had an idea of who he was. No one really wanted to talk about it or say who who did it. You know, the whole coach culture of, of snitching in the neighborhoods. And from what I recently learned is that that person who was rumored to kill my brother has actually been killed. Right, because it was the um, retaliation, right? That's the only thing I could think of. Yeah, so the rumor was my brother had killed someone. And so the people who killed my brother, I heard it was two of them, but it was ma- it was mainly just one, just one person. So they killed my brother. And so there was talks from what I learned, it was rumored that those people, that my brother's, friends will go and find that person and kill them and apparently within the last i want to say six months to to a year that person is rumored to be dead your analysis is important though because i know in the papers here they talk about the cycle of violence and you know like it's this like thing that's just out of control out of nowhere you know they never want to talk about the policies the, the the structural decisions and dynamics that are creating the actual cycle. They want to act like these people just are just doing this for no reason. They always call it senseless and, you know, whatever. Yeah, senseless um, violence. (laughs) Yeah, and like, but what you've been describing here between the schools, between the way that the care is set up, between the pay of the nurses, all of these systems, this actual logic, you know, it's far from senseless. It's actually... There's a whole logical coherence to the whole thing. And they, and it's not like in the abstract somewhere. These are like decisions that are, that we've made as a society as to how we want things to exist, you know? Right. And how do you feel when like a Donald Trump, you know, and Hillary Clinton 
are running their mouths during the debates about violence in Chicago. Like that's like, it's like everywhere in, um, in media narratives, you know, how do you feel about the way that it's often portrayed as being like senseless and unrooted? Yes, I really don't like it. I didn't even like it when President, um, former President Obama talked about it either, you know? Um, you know, to, to feel like, I guess Donald Trump wanted to send the National Guards out there and people really want to get ahead of and control the violence in Chicago. And even when individuals speak up, it's like, oh, you know, I know they're doing a lot of killing in Chicago. It's, it's, <laughs> it's funny because they're, what, almost 3 million people, if not 3 million people to live in the city? Everybody can't be scared, <laughs> you know, and and that's when I think about it. I was like, this is a pretty big city with millions of people that live in the city. It's attracting businesses and people there all the time. This violence that people are, are um, that people are speaking of is really housed in a, in a couple of particular areas in Chicago. And it's only a certain group of people getting hurt. You know, um, Trump Towers is still standing going well in Chicago he ain't losing no business you know these are real people with real situations and real lives just trying to figure it out they are working it out amongst themselves in ways that people don't agree with or don't understand I like how you mentioned Obama because I I knew he was gonna come in there and say some dumb shit I knew it when Hadia Pendleton got killed oh, I yeah. believe that was what was that 20, 2013 maybe yeah uh, and I, I remember saying, if this man goes to Chicago and talks about fatherhood, I'm going to throw my shoe at the screen. And he, of course he did. And of course I ain't throw my shoe at the screen. I ain't got racks like that. So, <laughs> but it was so predictable. So you have Trump talking about the National Guard. Um, but you also have a lot of black political leaders um, one, one, some of whom here in Chicago talk uh, support the National Guard policy, and we're talking about it before Trump said anything about it, for one. But you have a lot of black political leaders saying, pull your pants up, you know, uh, all this type of stuff that does not speak to anything about, like, the stuff that you're talking about as far as the, the systems um, of power that actually facilitate this debt. Like, do you think that black political leaders have in, are really engaging this issue of violence or engaging the lives of people like your mom and like your brother and stuff like that. You know, the biggest frustration I have with black political leaders or just black folks in general who's talking about violence in Chicago, uh, I think the number one thing I hear them say is we got to stop killing ourselves. They're already killing us and we helping them out or we're not valuing ourselves or loving ourselves. And that has nothing to do with that. That's nothing to yeah. do about love because my brother loved the people in his gang. He loved them. Those were his brothers. He loved me. You know? So I, I don't, I, I, I'm not going to take that stance that, like, love is going to change at all. You know, it's already a lot of love in the room. <laughs> you know? Um, people are just looking at it differently. And it's going to take a lot more than love. It's going to take a lot more than turning the other cheek. <laughs> it's going to take a lot more than those things to really address these issues and so I don't like the stance that particularly a lot of black political leaders or black artists are when they speak about the violence in Chicago or just the violence in, in the communities and in, in general. I think maybe to some degree it has a very small part of it, very 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 small, but it has to do a lot with everything else we just talked about, you know, about the economic advances or just understanding class analysis, you know, 
it's like what came first the chicken or the egg um for us uh class duh but that's not that's not very obvious um for a lot of people and, and for us robert it was us it was obvious for us for a long time it's, it's gonna take people some time to get there and it's really easy for people to say we need to love each other more and respect each other more it's easy to you know to develop a moral cause you know a, a moral reason for it. it's easy to go there when you when you when you use a class analysis you are challenging yourself <laughs> you are saying that you are also a part of the problem because because you have a vested interest in it whether we know it or not myself included and as we know power is hard to give up so we've talked a lot about this, the the details of the story, but for the sake of the audience, like, what do you want them to remember about this story? How do you want your brother's life to be remembered? So I, I want to take a moment to talk about the day he passed away. He, um, my mom put him on a no no resuscitation list at this point of his his life. He was just not in the best of health. You know, when he first got shot, he was able to communicate with us and talk. And the doctors told us that he suffered some some kind of brain injury, and they, they and they they didn't know when it would take effect. And he got shot in May, and in September he had this this seizure that started to really deteriorate his um his brain his brain neurons and development and whatever the science is behind that. But he ba- basically became like developmentally just incapacitated. And so that that August, you know. He lost his heartbeat. My mom put him on a not not resuscitate list, and then um, um, we chose the day that he would pass away, which was August twentieth. And this is why I want people to remember about Richard. Um, so we all are in the room. His last day, we decided to unplug the machine, and we're just talking about him as if he's still there, sharing stories, laughing, cracking up. You know, um, remembering all the fun things he did and all the jokes he told and just the sweet person that he was. And just we reminded him that we loved him. We all touched his heart and we all listened. You know, we all felt his heart fade away in the palm of our hands. And upon him passing away, he donated his organs Somebody out there has his cornea, and somebody out there has his liver. You know, somebody out there has skin grafts from him. Somebody out there has all these reusable parts that um, that was that he that was still good enough to help somebody else live a little bit longer, a little bit more comfortable. Um, and because of his his death. You know, and his ability to pay it forward through his death and reuse his body parts has really helped me in my in my grieving process. So I, I just want people to to know that he was always a given person, and even in his death, he still gave. So you talked a bit. You mentioned uh, your healing process. What has that been like? Um, it's been hard. It's um. It's been hard. And, um, I'm sorry. <laughs> Take your time. <laughs> I'll wait till the end and start crying. 
Um, you know, man, I really miss my brother. <laughs> and um, I really hate. I just get so angry and I get so mad. That, mo that more couldn't have been done to help him. I get so mad and angry that, you know, <laughs> that my individual acts wasn't enough because the issues were so much deeper than just moving him across the country or trying to find him a better job. <laughs> you know, when I think about it that deeply, you know, it just makes me really angry. And so what I've been trying to do <laughs> to really, you know, address some of those issues in my personal life and be honest, <laughs> I'm really just trying to get back to, like, the core of who I am. You know, what are where are the, the, the individual things and the, and the systems, you know, that, that make me up? And what can I do to to be better? And so what I what I started to do was I started making my own household goods and my own beauty part products, really paying attention to like what am I putting in my body or on my body? You know, um, what really looking into recycling and like doing things a lot different. And I um, I met an amazing person my my boyfriend Emmanuel and I got into farming and it's been so healing <laughs> and I think my brother would look at me and be like oh my gosh my sister's a farmer I can't believe it <laughs> and I can see him now <laughs> cracking jokes but being really proud of me too that like I'm doing something that's very meaningful you know and and happy that I'm really trying to show people that you can like my brother did, it did. I'm not saying everyone go out there and sell drugs and, you know, be a drug dealer. But you can get to where you need to go on a notch, off the beaten path, you know? Mm. You can be you differently. You know, I don't want people to go through Carlton and have to change who they are to, um, to conform to society. That was hard for me. You know, I don't want people to, to feel like if they want to take a different way to make an income that is going to um, cause issues with their family or friends. Go go and live, go and, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Oh, go and, um, like I like to say now, go off-grid in color. That's the name of my blog. And, you know, when I, when I think about the blog, you know, it's really about my homesteading journey, really healing and really trying to get people back to them. Which is, to me, it's healing for me to deal with the death of my brother. Of really just being true to yourself and true to your values. And I think ultimately that's what my brother was doing. You know, and how can you do that and rock out, you know? And be feel good about it. Um, and really build community and really organize around being a healthier, more sustainable you. So, you're a, so when you say you have a homestead, uh, that's... Explain what the, explain generally what that what that is, where that is, and what that's been like. So a homestead is pretty much a a way of living. It generally it's a it's a lifestyle of living. So um, generally it it involves um, farming, 
and um, living more sustainably. So I have a um, a solar panel. I have solar panels, and I uh, I farm, and I make a lot of my own home goods, and I live in a very self-contained life. Generally, right now, I do live off, off the grid, so I, I, I manage my own waste. I gather my own power, you know, and I raise my own food. So generally, that's what a homestead is. In addition to, like, you know, reimagining life and, like, doing these more sustainable things um, within the small community that you create, what hope do you have about changing the policies, changing the power structures, changing the dynamics, the forces that produced your, your brother's death? I'm hoping that we can work more as an organized community to address the systemic issues that even create these situations. So how can we develop um, better school systems? Or when someone is ready to take away what we already have established, established, what can we do to mitigate that? Like, what could we have done to save those schools that the, the Chicago Public School closed down? You know, what, what kind of organizing efforts could we have employed to ensure that that didn't happen? Um, you know, my, my goal is to, is to see where we can go to address these issues before they even happen. Like, how can you ensure that within a certain mile radius that there is a level one trauma unit in place for for people who sustain life-threatening in, um, injuries. And I think it's, it's really important that we understand that t- collectively together we have power and that we can, we can change the outcomes of, um, you know, of our youth in the, in the future. So I'm hoping to, uh, I'm hoping to somehow get, in, get involved in, in more of that. And I think in some ways I, I, I try to address it, I guess, through a health way with the homestead and farming. All right, so I wanted to wrap it up. Did you have anything else that you would like to say to the audience? Robert, you have a huge fan base, and I remember during a time of my brother's death, you definitely sent um, sent it like a go. You helped set up a GoFundMe link, and I just want to thank everybody who contributed to that. Um, the money was definitely used to really support the memorial services. We had to cre- cremate my brother, so we were able to to actually get that done and um, get a place for it to have a memorial service and get all the things that are needed for that. And I just want to just say just thanks for all the all the community support and um, just continue to be with me on this journey. You can definitely follow me on my Instagram and my YouTube channel called both of them are called Off Grid, um, Off Grid and Color. That's it. <laughs>